0: withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to help us understand his word. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for giving us your word today and that by your word you give your people life. Lord, we are dependent upon you. Lord, we need you by your spirit to move and to work in our hearts and our minds so that we can see Jesus Christ, that we can behold his glory, that we can be overcome by it. And might live our lives for him. Lord, help us to desire Christ. Even as your servant Paul desired Christ. Help us to see him today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Alexander has a funny little thing that he'll do every now and then. He'll run up to me and he'll say, Dad, follow up for me. I'll say, okay. He goes, okay. All right, he says, answer these questions. Who are you? And I'll say, Dad. And I'll say, what's in my hand? And I'll say, Nothing. All right, now, he'll say, w- what's this? I'll say, "Nose," and he'll say, what's in my hand? Nothing. He says, now put it all together. Dad knows nothing, and then he cackles, and he runs away laughing. <laughs> and I think every time he does it, you don't know half of what I don't know, right? He, uh, There's so many things, and, and it's so true. Dad really doesn't know anything, and I realize that as he gets older and older, he's going to learn more and more and more, and he's going to know way more than I could ever possibly know, right? As he is a teenager especially, that's going to be the case. But then something happens, I know at 20, around 25, they tend to realize that they don't know half as much as they thought they knew at one point. But anyway, today in this passage, we see that Paul says, I'm going to make it, I made it a point among you, the Corinthians, to know nothing among you except for one thing, To know Jesus Christ and him crucified. We see Paul's approach to the Corinthian church. And we need to remember that Paul is writing to this church because of all of the problems that this church is having. Uh, This is a modern day church with all the problems of a modern. uh, Or this is a church that has all the problems of a modern day church. Uh, There's messy immorality. There's uh, messy relationships among people. Uh, there's uh, issues between the poor and the rich. There's all sorts of things that are happening in this church. But he spends the most amount of time dealing with divisions in the church. And in Paul's mind, these divisions are the most dangerous thing for uh, the church at Corinth. And so he deals with that. In chapter 2, this section comes right in the midst of that. Now, why is he talking about Christ in the midst of division? It's because... He wants them to focus on the main thing and for them to understand that in order to overcome divisions, they have to focus on the most important thing. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to see how Paul addresses the Corinthians and how this actually corrects the divisions or some of the divisions uh, in the church at Corinth. We're going to look at this in three ways. First of all, we're going to see Paul's approach in verse 1, the way that he says he approached the Corinthian believers. Or the Corinthians when he first came. Uh, Secondly, we're going to see, I have Paul's message on your outline, but I want to change that to Paul's philosophy. Um, Just to stick with the P theme, right? Uh, So, Paul's philosophy, uh, it's his message, and he says, This is the way, this is the the way that I came to you, and the philosophy behind his message, really. And then the final thing is Paul's posture in verses three and five. So, let's begin with Paul's approach uh, to the Corinthians. And when I came to you, brothers, this is verse 1, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. We need to remember something about Corinth, that in this day, in the first century, that the city of Corinth was the third most important city in the Roman Empire. Behind Rome, which was the political center for the Roman Empire, uh, and therefore had a lot of wealth and a lot of influence politically, uh, because it was the place where all the governmental bureaucracies and the Caesar himself was established and, and where he lived, that Rome was probably the most important city for that reason. And a lot of commerce and a lot of uh, the economy flowed through through uh, Rome. Uh, the second most important city in the Roman Empire in this day was uh, the city of Alexandria. Um, it's a lot like Alexandria, Louisiana. It's a center of higher education and a lot of really important things I'm kind of making fun of Alexandria for from there. Um, Alexandria uh, is, uh, it was northern Africa, uh, and it was well known as kind of the hub for all higher education in, uh, in Rome. Um, if you were uh, anybody that was in education, you had to go through Alexandria uh, in order to get your credentials. And so uh, for that reason, it was really important. It also was a very important port city. Uh, It was kind of a station in the Mediterranean, uh, in between uh, uh, Rome and Greece, uh, down into Africa, on into the Middle East. It was a very important hub for that. But then you have Corinth. Now, Corinth is situated um, really close to the city of Athens, uh, and it ended up being an extremely important economic hub for uh, the Roman Empire. There's a variety of reasons for that, but... What the Romans ended up doing is instead of uh, instead of going around uh, this land mass with their boats, they decided it would be cheaper, cheaper and easier for them to pick up their boats, put them on uh, these carts, these huge carts, and roll them across the land. And Corinth was kind of situated right there at this place where they did this. And they would collect uh, um, tariffs and they would collect other kind of uh, different uh, income from doing this. It was an incredibly important city, so important that the Caesars sent legions and legions of soldiers there. Uh, it was also because it was so uh, wealthy, it was an important place for the arts, and it was an incredibly important important place for religion. Uh, now, one of the things that grew in this area and grew in, um, in Corinth because of the wealth that was there because of the leisure activities that they were able to partake in, the families that were there wanted their children to know how to mingle in high society. We already saw last week not many of them were of nobility, but they had money. And so what do people with money want to do? They want to establish the generations after them. And one of the ways you do that is you provide education for your children. Now in Rome in this day, one of the highest forms of education is was what was called rhetoric. And rhetoric is essentially learning to talk good. Okay, It's learning to put words and phrases uh, together in ways that appeal to the audience and convince them of whatever you want to convince them of. And in rhetoric, what ultimately ends up happening is the truth doesn't matter. Convincing people and arguing with people and getting them to believe what you want them to believe is the most important thing. And so in this kind of situation and in the Roman Empire, because rhetoric was the highest form of education, convincing people that what you believed was the truth was the most important thing, essentially all truth was subjective truth. All truth came down to whatever you could convince another person was the truth. There was no such thing as the truth that was out there. There were no just facts. It was just whatever you can convince anybody of the truth. Uh, That's what the truth really was. Now if that sounds familiar, it's because we are living very much in that kind of day today. There's no such thing as the truth. Everyone is taught and everyone is told over and over and over. Regardless of the TV shows or, or whatever you watch you're told that the truth comes down to whatever you feel. That's the truth. And so you hear people talk about, well, I'm going to tell you about my truth. As if there's such thing as your truth apart from the truth. Okay? The scriptures are offensive to modern man and were offensive to ancient man as well because ancient man and modern man wants to build himself up and wants to put himself in the place of God and say, I can determine the truth. What Paul says is, I did not come to you in that way. I did not come to you using this method that everyone is so familiar with because I don't want the method to destroy the message. So, and he believed, very much so, that using rhetoric would have undermined, it would have been subtle, but it would have undermined the message that he was presenting because he doesn't want people to believe Paul's truth. He wants people to believe the truth of God. The Word of God. And if he would have come using the form of rhetoric that everyone was familiar with, then that would have undermined the message that he was giving. Everyone would have just said, well, that's what Paul thinks, but what does somebody else think? So Paul doesn't go that way. What's uh, the application to us? I think there's uh, an individual application to you and me and also a corporate application to us as a church. Uh, individually it means that we need to be less impressed with the world's means of convincing us of the truth there's an interesting thing that's been going on uh, in the United States for the last 15 years and it's essentially that uh, in uh, whether you know whether whatever news show you watch or, or whatever uh, news um, uh, broadcast you're watching CNN Fox News MSNBC whatever it is that you prefer you um, if you know whatever sports shows you like to watch whatever it is essentially what we've come to believe is that whoever yells the loudest is the one that's the that's right and so if you turn on any of these shows sports to news whatever it is you will find people yelling at you trying to convince you of the truth well we need to understand that no matter how loud someone is no matter how passionate someone is that that doesn't mean that they are then right? Now you all know that, but it's very easy for us to be seduced by the means that the world uses in order to convince us of the truth. What about so? That's individually. Just just a warning for you. Who are you listening to? Secondly, what about corporately? How, this really teaches us how the church should operate. Um, Paul says, "I didn't come using the means of the world to convince you of the truth." What should we as a church be doing? Well, we need to use the means that God has given us to convince us of the truth. There are lots of churches out there that have found wonderful ways to get people in the door through entertainment, through really good music. Um, They have piano players on Sunday mornings, things like that. I mean, they'll have really good productions. Um, They'll do things like show movies during the, the service. They'll do all of these things to get you involved uh, and get you there because it's entertainment. Well, we need to be very careful. We need to make sure we are doing things excellently for the, for the glory of God. But to use the means that the world, world uses to convince people of the truth actually undermines the message. We are to be about, as a church, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ centered in Jesus Christ And him crucified. That is our method. That is how we convince people of the truth. We saw last week and the week before how the world thinks that that's foolish. And Paul says, absolutely, it is foolishness. But it's the truth that God uses, it's the means that God uses. And we need to stick with those means. Second thing we see is Paul's philosophy. And you see this in verse 2. Well, he says, I didn't come to you in this way, so how did he come? To the Corinthians, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's interesting there. Paul says, first, I decided. See, what he's saying is, I made some decisions before I came to you. You remember that Paul was in the city of Corinth for a year and a half? He had a normal way of doing things. He was a tent maker there. He literally built tents for uh, the first bit of time that he was there until a church grew up among them, uh, until enough people responded to the gospel and they could plant a church, and then he went full-time into that gospel ministry. But he said, you know, while I was there among you, I made a decision to know only one thing among you. And this is what he's saying. This is my philosophy. This is how I have come to you. And he says, my philosophy determined my methodology. And that's really important for you. Um, I was involved with RUF uh, um, uh, at LSU and RUF at different stages. RUF is Reformed University Fellowship. There's one reason why I like it uh, more than any other college ministry that's out there. I think it's the best college ministry. I know there's great college ministries, but I like RUF over all the other ones because they promote their philosophy of ministry. And they say that if you don't understand your philosophy really, really well, then you're going to let your methodology determine your philosophy. Your methodology will determine your philosophy. So if you understand that you have this thing that you are told to do by God and let that philosophy run what you do, then you're going to do the things the way that you need to do. And Jesus Christ is going to be the most important thing. And that's what we see here. That Paul says, I want my philosophy to determine my methodology. And when I'm saying philosophy, I'm not talking about worldly wisdom or anything like that. He's saying, these are the principles that I'm I'm basing everything else on. That's essentially what I mean when I say philosophy. So what is it? What is Paul's philosophy? It's essentially this. It's simply this. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So, it's not that and here's the thing we need to understand about Paul. It's not that he became an idiot among the people. Paul was highly intelligent. He's from the city of Tarsus, which is one of the another c- uh, center of education for the Roman Empire. He was raised by a Jewish mom who raised him in the Jewish faith knowing and reading Jewish text so he could read and write from a very young age and could memorize and did have uh, large sections of the bible memorized he ended up becoming a pharisee which was kind of the elite of the elite of Jewish uh, Jewish men so he had a very high education Jewish education but we know also that he was half greek that he was also trained in Greek or Roman schools. He likely understood and knew all of the philosophies of the day. He read the great poets and the classical writers of literature. He knew all of those things, so much so that when he goes and he preaches in at Athens, he can quote their poets back to them from memory. Paul is highly educated. He is super smart. And he's not saying, I gave all that up when I came to you. He's saying... I made it a point to not promote myself, to not present myself, to not make myself the main thing. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, I want you to know who Jesus is. He says, and essentially when he says, I want you to know, um, I, 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 wanted, I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ. Well, that's, here's the thing, that's the person of Jesus Christ. I want you to know who Jesus is. And then secondly, in him crucified, that's the work of Jesus. You see here, you get to know the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, and the work of Jesus in his crucifixion. So those two things, I think, are really important because he wants them to know Jesus. Who is he? There's lots of different ways that we can identify Jesus. Jesus identified himself as the son of the father, And we know that he is the second person of the Trinity, that he has existed in eternity, that he was not created, but himself created all things that have been created. That he also was the God-man, that he took on flesh and became fully man. He was not sort of half God and half man. He was fully God, 100%, and fully man, 100%. That he was the prophesied Messiah that all of the Old Testament scriptures were talking about and pointing to. That he was the righteous one that God the Father sent into the world. That we might have a righteousness, an alien righteousness to borrow from Martin Luther. That was not and is not of ourselves. That's who Jesus Christ is. And because of who he is, Jesus Christ demands our worship. He and only he has the right to our worship because he is God. So that's who Jesus is. That's Jesus in his person. And secondly, what did Jesus come to do? Well, ultimately, yes, he came to go to the cross, but the cross and Paul writing this means that there's a lot of things to unpack in that. Why was it necessary for Jesus to go to the cross? That's a really important uh, question uh, that you need to answer. I heard this week I went to a pastor's retreat. Thank you all for that. It was a wonderfully refreshing time for me. Uh, One of the men on this retreat grew up as a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, From the time he was four years old, he was going door to door uh, with the rest of the Jehovah's Witnesses to be a witness to what they believed. When he got to college, he was uh, searching and ended up meeting an RUF campus minister who took him out to play golf, and on the third hole, he asked him, well, you know, he he, he had been explaining what it meant to be a Jehovah's Witness and all these things, and uh, and this RUF campus minister said, well, tell me this, why did Jesus have to die? And he said from that point on, he couldn't play anymore because he was so taken with that question. Why did Jesus... Why was it necessary for him to die? Because if Jesus was just an example for us, then the cross really doesn't have any meaning. But if Jesus had to die for the sake of our salvation, it means there's so much more for us to understand and know. The cross of Jesus Christ, on the cross of Jesus, you don't see a man who deserved to die dying there. You see a man who did not deserve to die, who was completely righteous, who did nothing wrong, who had no sin, hanging on the cross for those who had sin, who could not bear the weight of that sin. So on the cross you see Jesus, the righteous one, taking our sin on himself. He lived a righteous life for 33 years, never sinning against God, so that you and I can have his righteousness a righteousness that we could not earn for ourselves. And then finally, he rose from the dead. After he was crucified, died, and was buried, he rose from the dead that you and I might have new life in Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the second Adam. The first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded and was sacrificed for us. Paul says, I made it a point to know nothing among you except the most important thing, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So what what about application for us? We need to know the person and work of Jesus Christ is the most important thing. Now, y'all know I love LSU football. I love LSU football. Um, But one of the greatest things about LSU football being so bad is that on Sunday mornings, we don't talk about LSU football. That does my soul so good, because if LSU football is going good, I want to come here and talk with all of you about how great LSU is doing. But you know what I really need to do? I really need to focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as your pastor, I need to be focusing for you on the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. So what about you? What are your discussions like on Sunday mornings when you're coming to church? Are you determining to know nothing among fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? Are you determining to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified? What are your conversations like? But not just among your brothers and sisters. What if we all went out here today and we're convicted that we need to tell others about the person and work of Jesus Christ. To determine to know among our families and our loved ones, nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Again, that doesn't mean we have to become idiots and just only say, well, Jesus and Him crucified, Jesus and Him crucified. No, but it means that everything in our life and every part of our life is given over to Jesus. So that in our work, in our recreation, in our watching football. It is all for him and his glory. And we're looking for opportunities to share the glory of Jesus Christ with others. The final thing that we see is Paul's posture whenever he approaches uh, these people. Well, what do you want in a leader? What kind of leader do you want? Ryan Dawson, uh, I'm glad he's not here today. I uh, I can tell on him a little bit. Uh, y'all know my fondness for talking about my failures. Um, I, I love doing it. It's probably an idol of mine. A lot of people like to talk about their successes. Well, I'm a massive failure, and I like telling y'all about that. And Ryan says, he he told me once, he said, Kelly, we, you need to stop telling us about how big a failure you are. We don't want to follow somebody who's a failure. And I'm like, well, sorry, this is what you got. This is who I am. What kind of leader do you want? What kind of leader do you want Let's say, for president, who are you electing for president? What if you had a president, uh, or somebody who was coming for president who said these sorts of things like Paul says? Verse three, "And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. We don't like our political leaders to be there in weakness, in fear and trembling. We actually don't even like our religious leaders to be there in weakness, and fear, and in trembling. But Paul says, that's how I came to you because the Corinthians, they liked shows of power. They liked telling everyone how strong they were, how good they were, how great they were, how they could do it on their own. Sounds like a lot of Americans that I know. <laughs> Paul says, that's not how I came to you. I came to you in this posture with weakness and fear and fear and trembling now i don't think this is a lack of confidence from paul i think this is paul saying that he understands the heaviness of the message that he is bringing he understood that it, if it were up to paul that paul as a massive failure who wanted to kill jesus christ who sought to kill christians that he knew that it was if it were up to him that he would not be qualified for this ministry and yet He came understanding the heaviness of it. He preached this gospel, and he had confidence not in himself, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is the gospel? That God, who knew no weakness, became weak for us. That's essentially what Jesus Christ did. And Paul says, I did not come to you in power and in might, in rhetoric and shows of force in convincing you of the truth of being louder than the next guy i came to you telling you simply about jesus christ in weakness so where does our confidence reside paul did not rely on himself but he relied on the spirit he said in verse 4 my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but he says they were in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power. Demonstrations of the Spirit and of power. He was dependent upon the Spirit of God showing His power through the weakness of Jesus Christ. It's the power of the Spirit. It's why I pray for us in the power of the Spirit that the Spirit might move in our hearts transforming our hearts making us more like Christ which means we humble ourselves. And we show ourselves to be weak. Why did he do that? He says he did that so that they would put their faith in God. That they would not have faith in men. It was not, he did not come with flashy shows of power or in eloquent words or anything like that. There's a website out there now and a book that just was released called Preachers and Sneakers. Um, and it catalogs some of the more uh, famous preachers uh, that are out there in the world. And they're very expensive shoes that they're wearing on Sunday mornings and their Rolex watches and those sorts of things. And it's not just the gospel, um, uh, the prosperity gospel preachers that are doing that. Uh, But it's men that have determined that in order to convince people of the, the good news of Jesus Christ, that they have to be flashy and showy. Um... I don't know if I should tell you to go look at it because it's kind of discouraging to show you the state of evangelicalism in America today. But it's preachers and sneakers. You can go home and look at it. What Paul says is, I'm going to put the focus on Jesus Christ, not on myself and not on the preacher. Because it's the Spirit of God who transforms. What are you relying on this morning? Not just in church, but in your everyday life. Because you can't do it on your own. You don't have the power in yourself to live the Christian life. Paul says this message is to remind you that you are dependent upon the Spirit of God. You are not enough, but God is enough for you. The Spirit is enough. Your faith should be in God and not in self. So in conclusion this morning, what do you know? What do you really know? If you know any more or any less than Jesus Christ and Him crucified, there's no power in that. Let me encourage you, know Jesus and Him crucified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this message today and we pray that you would help us as your people empowered by the Spirit to know nothing among us but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.